Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Real Talk, a movie podcast. We are your go-to source for ratings and recommendations of past and present films. I am your host, Wes Jones, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hey, this is Tommy, podcasting straight from Nashville, Tennessee. The movie buddy Conway, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. I just think it's cool. And up here, this is a this is a shark tooth from the guy from um, the guy who who sculpted who created Bruce the shark in Jaws. This is actually off the mold of the teeth. Oh from wow! Him. Here's a rosary that John Carpenter gave me many years ago. But that is um, this is a gin ring. You know who Andrew Devoff is? Who played the Wishmaster? He's oh, one of my he best is. friends too. Oh really? And he made oh, so he cool. made a few of these rings and he gave me one of them and everything up here has a story you know like the krampus bell i just Krampus <laughs> recently anyway everything has a story king kong decanter from king kong 76 that i've had for many years and then ended up working on the blu-ray of there's all the crestwood house monster books i'm very proud of I, it's taken me many years i'm only a few shy of the full collection do you guys do you know do you know of these books no i'm not familiar no when I was a kid, uh, these, they were library only. Like you couldn't just go buy them in a bookstore. And each one is about a different monster. And it combines, them, like you can see, Hammer and mm-hmm. Universal. And so I, I knew of these c- creatures and characters before I even saw the movies through these books when I was a kid. This is Kane Hodder's new book you sent me. We got to meet him just we got to a meet him. couple meet months. The other back. person that was in our group, it was awesome. <laughs> oh, he's <laughs> he's real tall. He... Yeah, he's amazing. I I just did him for the Alligator Two disc. You interviewed him for a bit. Yeah, yeah, I got him on because he did Alligator and Alligator Two. Well, it's a funny story behind it, but uh, he was definitely an Alligator Two. He plays one of the thugs. He's credited with being an alligator. What was funny is when I got him on, he was just, you know, people have been saying for years that I'm an alligator. He said, I don't fucking remember being an alligator. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, I have this faint memory of being inside the, an alligator costume of some sort in the, in the jaws, like the mechanism for the jaws. He said, but that's, I, it's so little and so faint that I don't, I really don't think I was there. So let's just talk about part two. And it turned into a really interesting conversation. Of course, whenever we got up there, we were up there with a big group. We went to Scarefest in Lexington. I'm not for sure. Oh, yeah. Familiar. That's a big show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And uh, mm-hmm. he was there. And my buddy, he's a, uh, his name's Matt. He's, he's, he's pretty built. You know, he works out quite a bit. He's not real super tall, but I mean, he's, you know, he's muscular and fit and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like Kane, like latched onto him. He came over there. He's like, here, I'm going to take a picture with this guy. And he like gets mad in uh, pretty much like a, a stranglehold and, and yeah. holds him. And we got like a, a great picture of Matt really wincing. And we talked to Kane for a bit. And then afterwards, Matt said, he's like, dude, that was cool and all. But he like really hurt me. He's like, I cannot he get does. over how strong he is. Because Kane's, I mean, he's just a few years from 70. Yeah. And dude is super strong. I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, that's his thing. And I was really surprised too. when I, I met him many, many years ago at, so at some of I think in Worcester, Massachusetts, I used to host this event out there every year. Amazing event called Rock and Shock that I would do all the panels for and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. he, he he chokes everybody. 
that's his thing. And it's like, you know, that if you're meeting Kane and you say, can I get a photo? He's not even going to ask. He's just going to, that's the pose. He's going to, and he has his gloves on. So there's like an uh-huh. unreasonable grip anyway. And then he gets his hands around your neck, no matter what gender or age you are. There's little kids he's choking to death on the <laughs> convention floor. But that's the Kane experience, you know, like I got exactly. choked by Jason. I think people, you know, they may yeah. hurt for a couple of days, but afterwards they look back on it fondly, which is. Yeah. Later. He choked me. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's going to be back this this next year. I just saw that they announced that he would he would be back. So maybe we can get you choked out, Gabe. We'll yeah. see what I we'll see what we can do. I don't think you have to ask him. That seems like he's pretty he's pretty cool with it. <laughs> well, how do you know? How do you know Justin? Did you just stalk him, or do you know him? Well, that's that's the thing. I feel like I do know him, but if from listening to a horror movie podcast and Land of the Creeps, Father and Son, you know, talking with Matt and and jason piles and uh greg and all them that you know they they mention you justin on their shows mm-hmm. they've just told stories and talked about it. it's almost i feel like i know him and talked mm-hmm. to him a couple of times on twitter but had never actually got to to talk with him so i just reached out to see if he would he'd come say hey to us for a bit and help us record an episode i appreciate you reaching out and like i said in the when you first did and I look look forward to this chat. It's going to be fun. And those guys on those shows are so amazing. They're just every name you just threw out there. These just like you guys. I mean, they're ambassadors for not just horror, but for cinema. Fly the flag of fandom in a really good, I think, healthy and nurturing way. And that's, I think, what I would imagine drove you to want to have a show like this is Mm -hmm. to explore all this, all these crazy backwaters that are involved behind the <laughs> scenes with all this stuff. And, um, but it really, it serves such a huge purpose for fans and it's, it, it is a community. It is a family. The way we talk about each other, it's just, uh, you become, it's like brothers and sisters with these folks. And I just love every, every, every name you just said, they're just people that I just adore am honored to know. And uh, this genre has brought that. And I think that it's one of the unique aspects to horror is that, it unites people and there's a real there's a real shared love of our shared interests but also with each other uh, mm-hmm. and i it's it's a really special thing that i'm just so honored to be a part of in even a tiny way i think what's funny is if that you're not a part of the horror culture people would feel like i think some people think well there's there's just a lot of freaks that that get in there and and they like horror and stuff like that and they can't be the nicest people they like watching you know some of these terrible things on the screen and stuff like that as i've gotten more and more into it over the years they're like the nicest people when it comes to literally anything but especially in what we call quote unquote like film twitter (laughs) you know they're just they're so loving they want to talk about movies they want to hang out they want to meet up those shows that i mentioned they have such a big following of people that have those similar interests and they just constantly support each other Uh, on um, uh, land of the creeps facebook page greg's wife pearl is such a sweet person and i think somebody somebody new had got on there and like said something bad about her and she had like (laughs) the entire group come to her rescue and defend her it's just Exactly like what you were saying. That's that's my same experience with this community, and I just love meeting new people in it. Yeah, I think it's great. There's there, there are competitive elements to any kind of thing like that, especially when you talk about film, Twitter, and things that can get kind of ugly sometimes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I think by and large, especially if if you get the chance to go to film festivals and conventions, where we all grew up 
mo- I would say can't, I don't want to generalize, but I think many of us, most of us grew up having these same conversations with whoever was close to us when we were little mm-hmm. and we'd go and rent armloads of tapes or discs and burn through as many as we could in a weekend and theorize about, oh, maybe Michael's going to do this next. Or I remember sitting on the bus talking to my friend after seeing Halloween 4, the ending of Halloween 4, and he was a huge, he introduced me to Halloween, my friend Matt. And we just could not talk enough about what it, what could possibly happen here. <laughs> I mean, it really blew our minds. And so anyway, the point is that these conversations, they port forward to us as adults. And now the great thing is the reason there's this explosion of all of these different distribution companies and, you know, the small labels can survive. This world is in the hands of those kids. It really is like mm-hmm. the people that are our relevant age are the ones who are creating this stuff now. And with the mindset and the consideration that we always yearned for for so many years where we were man this has no special features damn it you know we we knew how special it was when anchor bay put would put a second tape in the in the box with special features on it or a reversible cover with some background on a film whatever it might be and so we don't take this stuff for granted and we're and so that's the that's sort of the heart i think of this explosion of celebrating all catalog, not just big titles. Yeah, Evil Dead's going to get re-released again. Yeah, Halloween's going to get re-released again. But how amazing that there's labels like Vinegar Syndrome who are putting out Beware Children at Play. And I mean, the, the list goes on and on. So it's an amazing community. For our audience, I really didn't even do like a, a, a big introduction for you, but you know, we're, we're going to be chatting tonight with Justin Beam and Justin, his resume. If you go on and look at his IMDB or you go over to his, his website, uh, justinbeam.com and that's B E A H M. If you go over there and you, and you, you check that out, check out his Reverend entertainment business that he has going on. He's just done so many interesting things. And that's why we thought, man, he would be a great interview guest and that's why of course we've invited you on tonight just to talk about several different things but i thought maybe a good starting point for our audience is just to tell them a little bit about what do you do i know you have a lot of things that you're involved in but especially around you know what you're doing with physical media and the special features and things like that so i just kind of wanted to open that up and just kind of tell us whatever whatever comes to mind on that it's been such a crazy road it continues to be it's the adventure part of all of it i guess is how it's kind of a meandering experience because there's no ladder to climb when you get into this stuff i don't think i don't think really in most any side of entertainment there's not really like okay now you're at point a to get to point b you need to do this to get to point you know that doesn't really exist and so it's almost like what what fuels the any kind of growth is passion and it started out for me many years ago where I was writing for newspapers i was an assistant editor for some weekly newspapers and writing for some regional music magazines in illinois in high school i you know wrote for the school paper and things like that and self-published some books so i've always been into exploring expressing myself in different ways i guess you could say and then i started writing for fangoria magazine and that led to famous monsters of Filmland magazine and scream out of the uk and all these other amazing publications and through all of that i started meeting a lot of people and that led me on the path that i'm 
still on and eventually into the realm of producing special features and documentary stuff for for physical media and streaming now as well as first run releases too so EP, what they call epk things that they use for the press that that's more studio type stuff but my day-to-day I, I produce for a number of different companies so paramount pictures and shout factory are my main two and then shout factory scream factory same thing under the same umbrella also studio canal and vinegar syndrome arrow video out of uk there's a number of different labels and in studios that i do this for and what i'm doing is creating content primarily for physical releases like for an example say shout reaches out and says hey we just licensed this film we'd like you to do it would you like to produce it yeah okay i they give me the freedom which is so i mean unbelievably awesome of them to just they say i say what's the budget and due date and they give me those things and then i just start putting together my own little dream list of who i'd like to have involved and then i start tracking people down so the actors the producers directors special effects people costumers even down to the animal trainers whoever i think would be a fun and relevant interview i try to find and then it becomes is it going to be a commentary track or is it going to be an on-camera interview sometimes we've done location feature things in many cases we find cut scenes behind the scenes stuff whatever and so my day-to-day is not only tracking those folks down and getting them to agree to stuff in interviews but also finding materials so trying to find press kits and behind the scenes photos footage is usually pretty rare especially if it's something that hasn't i mean everything's been seen for the most part in most cases although we've gotten lucky a few times finding some really rare behind the scenes stuff and so i'm kind of like a i'm not really a historian because i don't i certainly don't consider myself an expert on the stuff you know i wouldn't ever be able to populate a commentary with that's not my thing. I'm more of like an an archivist, an archaeologist. Sort of feel like my my role is to put the stage up, make sure the scaffolding and the lights are up and there's a microphone and then there's people there and then I sort of just like open the stage to these folks for them to share their stories. And it's preserving all of that. It's really preserving history. And then I'm shooting, recording the interviews wherever they may be. And it sounds kind of boring as I'm sort of bullet pointing the whole thing here. But well, I mean, no, I mean, it's not actually because it's what what we do, except for you interact with people in real life. We just talk to them from our basements, from the comfort (laughs) of our own home. And then also people get to see what you do because it actually goes out in physical media. You're actually doing what we strive to do. So it doesn't sound boring to me one bit at all. And you've been in Sharknado. So it's like I'm very about four seconds. Yeah, I I would have settled for like just like a fingernail in there. But, you know, so (laughs) the fact that, you know, it's not boring to us. Don't think that for one second. What are some of the movies that you've done? Recent ones, King Kong 76, I think turned out great. The the pandemic has put some. Some real speed bumps in the process, as you can imagine. What speed bumps like meeting with people or yeah, where people are quarantined or they were especially the first year, year and a half of it where people were before prior to vaccine. I mean, hardly anybody was willing to sit in a room with a crew and be shot. So we've had to resort to some remote means. And and I, I just 
I understand the quality of like a Zoom interview as much as I try to up-res them and clean them up and all of that. You know, there's, there's yeah. only so much you can do with them. But I'd rather have the person and their story there than not have them at all. And when if it's either do this remotely or not have them, I'm going to want them there. And I'm hoping, and I think that history will, I, I hope, uh, reveal this to be the case. It's kind of a snapshot of a moment in time. We're all surviving through this the same way. So it's a shared experience that no one can sh- like look at confused. Like, what was this? Why? Why would they not be? <laughs> why doesn't this look normal? Prior to COVID, the interviews were all very polished and clean. And during COVID, there are usually throughout these discs sprinkled some Zoom interviews and things. But uh, that's coming to an end now. Now, you know, the shoots I've been doing this the last few months here, it's almost exclusively in person again. And people are really comfortable with that again, which is great. But it also, it forced some new creative exploration as well with the remote means and doing commentaries from home. And it also gives, even though the quality might not be there, and I know a lot of people gripe about that on some of the Zoom stuff, it's a rare thing to see inside someone's home. And that, yeah. that might sound weird, but it's very cool, I think, that usually we're in a, in a studio environment which is usually kind of sterile. It might be pretty and it serves its purpose, but ultimately that's very rarely speaking to who this person is. And it's, unless I'm shooting them in their house, which we do plenty of as well, it's usually a situation where it's not speaking to who they are. But these interviews over this t- last couple of years here have put us inside people's offices and workrooms and studios and makeup studios and things like that, which is kind of cool. It's been great for stalkers. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> well justin i wanted to say congrats on the recent releases of of alligator and alligator 2 i mean we've got them out on uh, i think alligators out on 4k and i believe alligator mm-hmm. 2 is on, on blu-ray right now yeah and i i'm of course plugged into the community a, a little bit more than the average person but i mean i'm seeing this everywhere so yeah the advertising is doing well uh, people that have have bought the discs have have been wanting to go out to social media and talk about how much they they like it and all that. And I'm embarrassed to say I did not really know this movie at all. Obviously, it was in the wave of the post Jaws films that came out. I think there was Grizzly and Orca and and Alligator and 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 ones like that. But uh, since it's fresh in print and and something that you you know worked on quite a bit. Would love to hear just how you got involved uh, with working on this and uh, just anything else that you want to tell us about these uh, these new collector's physical media editions. That was a long time in the coming because I was first approached by Shout about these two, I want to say four years ago. It took forever on the licensing front. It was like, oh, we're close. And then uh, we got to back away. Yeah, he because this uh there was there was someone standing in the way of it i'll just say it that way that somebody was not open to licensing them and so it was kind of sad because jeff inside scream factory he's the head of marketing he and cliff co-founded scream factory under the shout factory umbrella but this is alligators jeff's favorite movie and it's the one that he from the first day he started working there was like man one day i hope we get there it was that and the fog and he made the fog happen pretty uh-huh. quickly. That was pretty early for him. But this alligator thing, I mean, my heart hurt more than anything for Jeff because it was <laughs> like touch and go. Oh, now we're there. Now we're not. Anyway, finally, 
I don't know, six months ago or so, I was having breakfast, I think, with Cliff or something, and he said, it's finally happening. Like, we're, we're good. Let's, let's do it. Let's go. And I was like, are you sure? And then the next day I text him, like, we're, before I do anything here, we're sure. And he's, <laughs> like, he's like, yeah, now we're ready to go. So I was like, oh, man, this is okay. And I messaged with Jeff. I had this crazy, all these crazy ideas and uh, people I wanted to get involved with it. Of course, Louis Teague, the director, I really wanted to make sure that, that he was a part of it. Then I wanted Robin Riker. Robert Forster had since passed away, the other lead in the film. But there is an, an archived commentary from, I think, a Blue Underground DVD from many years ago that got ported forward. And then from there, it's like I wanted to talk to Rob Bob Short, who did effects on the movie and worked has a crazy story in there about the live alligator sequence from the beginning of the film. So anyway, putting the pieces together on this stuff. Yeah, there were a couple pieces that I was in the process on, just didn't have time to get it together. One, are you guys aware? Well, if you haven't seen the movie, it might not be. And actually, a lot of people who've seen the movie, including Louis Teague and Robin, didn't even know this, that there was a game, a board game, tie into that film. Have either of you guys seen this? It's crazy. <laughs> I saw, you put it out on your Twitter, I believe. Oh, I did. That's right. Because, well, the reason I put that out there is because I wanted to do a feature on this game because it's this crazy thing. It's an R-rated movie about a massive man-eating alligator. This, this company, Ideal, made a, a children's board game tie-in. And it says alligator <laughs> on it. It's got a drawing of an alligator on the side. The only way you know it's for the movie is if you look on the ends of the box, the smallest portion of it. And this thing's huge, and it's probably about 16 inches long, maybe. I mean, it's like a very huge alligator thing. It's kind of like the Jaws game, if you've ever seen that. Does it have like it, a little life, a little alligator figurine on the top of it? No, it's a oh, huge okay. alligator toy. And I posted, I don't, I'll send you guys pictures of it. I, I, I should post some. I have a bunch of pictures from this release event that we had a couple of weeks ago in Los Angeles, the day that they came out at dark delicacies and Jeff from shout factory has one of these sets, one of the, the board games and he brought it with him there. And I have pictures of people holding it. And so you, you can see it that way, but I wanted to tell the story of this game. Cause it makes no sense that they would make a children's game as a tie in to an R rated horror movie, but they <laughs> no. did. And I obviously it didn't do well because hardly anybody knows that it exists, but now it's the super collector's item. Well, I kept on running into roadblocks when it came to, finding people who were associated with it. I did figure out who the guy was who created it and he's passed away. And so that wasn't able to happen. Although I did get it. We did get the commercial for the game and I got that put on the disc. So you can, when you buy the Blu-ray, you can at least see television commercial for this insane board game. And the other thing (laughs) that I wanted to do when I was talking to Robert short and actually in some of the research, I had seen hints of it, but really wasn't until I was talking to Bob short for the interview piece where I found out that the alligator from the first film, it was this big monstrosity that didn't really work. It's a classic Jaws kind of thing, like the shark is not working, right? Well, the alligator's not working. Carlo Rimbaldi and his team had made it. It was kind of dead in the water. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. That wasn't Rimbaldi on that one. But but they had this mechanical alligator that that hardly moved. They had pre-sold it to Florida, to, to the university in in Florida and you know the gators and they were going they were they had purchased it with the idea of using it as a mascot during halftime and thing at, fo- at, at football games thinking this thing could saunter out on the field and you know like 
it's, it's not going to do what you think it's going to do. And then when they got it, it did even less. Like, and so they had to put <laughs> and they the got story ripped off. This, oh, they totally did. But the production had to be careful with it because they knew it is already paid for. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of like tiptoeing around using this thing very aggressively during the shoot, which is just wild. And a lot of the action shots are just a head or just the tail that they're whipping people with and stuff. It's a, it's a, such a wild and fun movie. But most of it's done with sections of alligator instead of the whole thing. My story here, though, is I wanted to tell the tale of Ramon. That was the name given to this big monolith sort of failure of an alligator that didn't really function like it should have in this movie that that the Florida Gators purchased because it, they, they did end up taking it to the school. They did end up using it during football games, but they had to wheel it out on a cart. And then they would have like their mascot in his foam costume riding on its back waving a you know pennant and stuff it's the craziest thing so here again now we have a film with a with a children's board game tied to it and now if you here's a stadium full of however many thousand people cheering as this motionless dead monstrosity comes being rolled out on a field and they're cheering for it not even knowing that it had had a role in killing many people on screen in this movie (laughs) and and i was in the process of getting in touch with all the people who were relevant to that story at the point where it was due so that's a, that's a tale that i want to i still want to do that story i still want to do i say did you the tell the story ramon? of ramon because i'm intrigued like it, it ramon becomes a board game ramon goes out to the basketball game and ramon doesn't even work I, yeah it's a it's a fascinating thing and the, and there were some students who did some restoration on it i found there was a there was a body shop near the school there that where they took it because it had like you know, give us a spoiler. Where's Ramon now? That's one thing that, that I, you know, that's, uh, I have not encountered. No one that I have talked to yet has been able to tell me where it is now. Mm-hmm. But Do you know I, how many years they got Did they use it? Like they the used gators? It ju- they used it just a couple years and it mm-hmm. wasn't really usable after that. So I think from what everybody, and I've been talking with people at the university, the, the guy who was the head of their department, the sports back in that at that time, like their football department, he went on to he now spearheads a, one of the biggest bowl games in the whole bowl cycle every year mm-hmm. for college sports. And I got to him most recently, and he knows everybody who was involved with it and has great stories. And so, this is just a little teaser to say that the story of Ramon will be told. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do it for this disc, but in a way, I'll get to tell the tell it in maybe a little grander fashion on my own outside of that. So Ramon's Ramon's legacy will not die. That's awesome. (laughs) Let's track. I mean, I'm all in. Like if we want to track down Ramon, I'll, I'll do black clothes and flashlights with you, man. (laughs) I picture Revenge of the Nerds. That means there you go. Revenge of the Nerds, where they're like, you know, the dun, 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 dun. and it's a, <laughs> breaking in and stealing Ramon. That's hilarious. But he will. I will. I I will meet him, and we will tell his story. Fantastic. You said part of it is you're trying to figure out. Okay, well, who who do I need to track down mm. to try to talk to and, and and be involved with and 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 get them on these these special releases? Of course, the fans are always all about. Uh, these characters or the director or just people that have had a hand in the films that mm-hmm. kind of get dug up and, and re-released. But from your experience, and it could be it could be some of the more popular films or it could be the ones like you said, you've kind of unearthed and, and brought back. 
how willing are people typically to be involved in this? Do you, do you run into roadblocks where you have somebody that you you really want and they just don't want any part of it? Or are most people pretty pretty willing to come along and participate? It's really split. I would say it's probably like 80, 20, 80 people are thrilled to be a part of it. 20 is where they're like, Oh, that's a part of my career. I don't talk about, or they just don't respond at all. Mm. There, there's, it, it gets complicated because there's a lot of, especially when agents are involved, agents and managers mm. who oftentimes stand in the way of things. And I don't know, this is the great mystery for those of us who work in this, in this stuff is it seems like some of them, I mean, well, you, you know, when you write them and they immediately respond with a rejection that they, there's no way they talk to the person that I'm inquiring about. And it's always like, yeah, but I know Paul Rudd, for example, Halloween six, when we were doing the, the Halloween box set, initially I was spearheading the whole thing. And there was a lot of moving parts at that time. It was very early in discussions and I really wanted to get Paul Rudd for it. And he's talked favorably about having been in that film. You know, he brings it up when he's on talk shows sometimes and he's not shied away from it at all. And I'm certain he would love to talk about it, but he's one that just the people won't let the request even get to him. So there is that side of it. By and large, though, people are thrilled when you reach out. And a lot of times they're like, I mean, in some cases, they've never been interviewed on something before or they've never been interviewed about whatever film it is that I'm inquiring about. There are some cases where it was an early movie of theirs that they're very proud of, and they're happy that it's finally getting some love. Like Oliver Stone was that way on The Hand, which I did last year. When Shout gave me the gig, it was kind of funny. I was like, okay, what's the due date? What's the budget? Okay, cool. And they're like, well, most of the people are have passed away that were associated with this. So, And it's not like you're going to get Oliver Stone. So I'm like, oh, I'm not. <laughs> and... So then like three days later, I call him up. I'm like, hey, I got Oliver Stone because I wrote to him <laughs> and he was so excited just because he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe it's finally seeing some. I, it, it's this movie that well, so many people don't even know exists. And mm -hmm. and it's a it's a good movie and it has a really great cast. Michael Caine and Oliver is very proud of it. It was during a challenging time in his life, but he was more than happy to come on board for an interview for that. This wasn't at the peak of covid when when this happened but he was a great example of someone who was just so so much gratitude for the movie seeing re-release again and then getting to talk to him was fantastic and um and then there were a lot of people like on sometimes i don't have breaks especially if it's a movie that i love like on big trouble in little china a couple years ago for shop factory i think i had like 15 interviews or something on there with new things and a lot of these guys who i mean because one of the things that's bothered me about releases of that film is that all of the non-caucasian cast members have essentially been ignored over the years and the movie is built on martial arts it's 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 mm -hmm. very much literally in some cases on the backs of these guys like peter kwong and carter wong and james hong is so eternally memorable for his turn in that movie is Lopin and Dennis Dunn, his sense of humor and his timing, his relationship with Kurt. And anyway, so I started reaching out to these guys and they were thrilled too. They're like, oh my gosh, I've been so excited to have a chance to revisit this because I've never been interviewed about this movie. 
and that really? blew me that, that blew, in a lot of these cases yeah and it blew me away because these are to me legends and i love that movie so much but i had i, I so i i had no breaks on that one and even through to carter wong who was in hong kong at the time he was housebound or temple bound, I guess you could say. So I had to hire a crew there to, to interview him. And he was so grateful for it. Carter Wong, you know, is a martial arts legend. He's like the next to Bruce Lee. He's one of the most respected, revered and celebrated on screen martial arts presences. And so for him to even do it was just incredible. And then at the end, he sent me a framed photo of him. And it's in this gold frame of him, a picture of him in his temple. And in this robe and stuff, it's a really cool thing, a photograph. And with this letter thanking me for taking the time to to tell his story, which is kind of rare. You don't you don't hear a lot of that stuff, but that was a good example. And then weird side roads too, like on that one on the Coupe de Ville's on Big Trouble in Little China. That's a band that did the theme song for it that's made up of Nick Castle, who played Michael Myers mm-hmm. in the original Halloween, John Carpenter, and Tommy Lee Wallace, who directed Halloween. I mean, these are, it's like the heart of the Halloween world. Exactly. John Carpenter yeah. and his two pals, and he's known Tommy Lee since they were kids, and this, well, there's got to be a great story here. So I wanted to tell the story of the Coupe de Ville's, and so that's in there. Anyway, so these guys... And, and you just never know who's going to say yes. You never know how they're going to respond. You just hope for the best. And, and, and inevitably, with every release, there's going to be people saying, why isn't blank involved? Right. Right. Well, trust me, we tried. We really, really tried. None of these are for a lack of trying on any front. And they don't always go the way that you're hoping that they will. Uh, sometimes things happen. If there's someone you thought should be there and isn't, there was a reason for it. it. What got me following your work is I believe you were on an episode of HMP maybe three or four years ago, and you were talking about the release of Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. Mm, yeah. I listened to that interview with you, and I just got so excited because of the documentary that you were talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And so I went out and literally the next day and and found it. At mm-hmm. my FYE before it went out of oh, nice. out of business, yeah. and I went ahead and bought it, and of course, you know that was like a thirty dollar DVD at the time or Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Took it home and watched it, and just and just loved it. And I've showed that movie to so many people, and of course, we had Eric Freeman, which you were so gracious to hook us up with him, and and Eric sure. came on and uh, got to know him a little bit. But whenever you were talking about people that. You know, some of them hadn't been interviewed before or they're kind of tough to get a hold of. Mm. I was just curious, now that we have the background on the show with Eric a little bit, how was it tracking Eric down? And then whenever you you got him to sit down and, and, and talk about Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 for the first time, I'm just curious from your pers- your perspective how that went, because I think he was kind of shocked a little bit and surprised with how much that people wound up loving his performance and the movie Mm -hmm. this is such a fascinating thing and i love the first one the first silent night and well i I love them both i I really do genuinely adore them both but as a kid i hadn't i didn't see two till later in life right it was it was years after i saw the original that i saw the second one and came to appreciate it but even then it's this movie you really have to sort of paint the picture of what the general 
cultural perception is of this movie. A lot of people look at it as kind of a hack job, to be frank. The reason why is because a good, not quite half, but about half the film is flashbacks to the first movie. My, I made it my mission when I got hired. My initial goal was obviously to create this, to tell the story of the making of the movie, but I wanted to make my piece. I was looking for the heart of this thing. And I found it in Eric and I found it in Lee, the director, Lee Harry. The way that I got in touch with Eric was actually through Justin Powell, who calls himself Piz Owl online. If you look him up, he's he has a, a YouTube show where he brings a lot of people on for interviews and he does unboxings. And he's a he's another real champion of the genre and all this stuff that we love. And he was good friends with Eric and had, had had him on his show. And so Justin was kind of the, in the beginning, before Eric knew who I was or anything, Justin was the one who connected me with Eric and acted as sort of the go-between. So I think Eric didn't really know what to make of it. I really think he, he didn't know what to make of it. And eventually we got to the point where we were, Eric and I started talking and then we were throwing some crazy ideas around. Like he has this script, it's a sequel to Silent Night 2. And he really wanted, he, he wants to see this thing made. Ricky, uh, it's like Ricky's Revenge or something. Mm-hmm. He was, and it's, as it. I got to know him, he, you, we, we had several conversations leading up to him being on the show. And like mm-hmm. I said, I got to know him a little bit. And he was telling me all about the the script and, and walking me through everything. And of course, me just wanting to see him portray this character again. I'm like, dude you could just be this character and go eat it at McDonald's and I'd want to watch it. So it's, it's yeah. like whatever you got, I'm down for it. Well, on that, see, this is, this is where things get really wild because when we were talking and I was like, man, I would love to help you kind of get that to happen. Why don't we do a teaser thing for it? Eric wrote a short. It's basically like a scene mm-hmm. that would be the, the conduit between Silent Night 2 and his Ricky film and to sort of reintroduce the character of Ricky to the world in 2018. And so I'm like, yeah, let's shoot it. Let's do it. So we scheduled time after the interview shoot to do this short piece and called Ricky today. And it was really, it was wild. Um, So to go back to the interview though, interviewing him was really fascinating because he's an interesting dude. The first thing we did was a comment was the commentary. It was him with Lee Harry and James Newman, who plays the the psych in the movie who's interviewing him. And they and at that time it it was really kind of like, is Eric even going to show up to this? As there was some question about whether he would even want to participate in the end. He did show up. Things went so amazing. And afterwards we were talking and he asked me, he's like, Have you ever met this guy, Scott Perlman? I'm like, no. And he said, well, he's behind this Finding Freeman movement. Hmm. I was, and, and he's making this documentary on trying, and this crazy thing. And Eric, he says all of this. The, the way I say it, I don't know that, it, I, I hope that it conveys the sincerity that he's approaching it with. But he really, there's no ego involved with this guy at all. No. He's, he's genuinely humbled by the whole thing. And he goes, I don't know why people would want to see this but we we shot some stuff and we did a teaser for it and i it's it's underway but i think you should talk to him and so i connected with scott who has since become one of my absolute best friends we're in touch all day every day texting and when i'm in la i'm 
we hang out every single time. We have projects that we're always kind of concocting together for future stuff. And Scott's had a fascinating career as a reality television producer of like The Simple Life and Ghost Hunters International and a bunch of other stuff. And so he's a, I mean, he's fascinating anyway, but he was really captivated by the story that you mentioned a minute ago about Eric not wanting to be found, or did he want to be found? And that became this online movement on social media called Finding Freeman. And everybody involved with this Facebook group was scouring phone books, business registries and things, trying to find any Eric Freeman they could because they just loved this movie, loved him. And it became this quest this archaeological dig to try to track this person down and just to talk with them. How incredible is that for a movie to, to resonate like that and to send these people on this mission that with boundless energy to try and track this person down, not for any reason other than to celebrate them. And so they know like what this movie means to them. And what's got really crazy about it is uh, if you talk to Eric, he almost, probably doesn't even believe it like he right. doesn't know he doesn't know if people are making fun or they really enjoy it it's like kind of like the troll 2 craze people really enjoy it people like the the true fans like really really love it and i think he's come to realize that over the years what if you guys check out this documentary like i don't want to yeah it tells the story yeah it tells yeah. a story but i mean it's a cool story and it's just i think it's just mostly a humble man short version it is, yeah. He's he's a very humble guy. That goes through life, just like all of us. Yeah, and it wasn't, as is usually the case, at the end of the exploratory road there isn't some insane story of a guy who went over the edge and <laughs> and lives in the fringes of society in a cabin in the woods eating <laughs> be- beaver pelts and whatever Although else. Although I wish he did yeah. live in the fringe of society eating beaver pelts. Although <laughs> beaver pelts what? probably isn't recommended. It, he and you know what's interesting about this thing and this this has happened only a few times in these interviews i love connecting with people i really really do and but there are and there are some moments that you don't even catch when you're in the moment just because you're you're just so engaged in discussion and you miss it and this was to your point about eric getting it now you actually see that happen on screen in the documentary i think mm-hmm. we're at the end of it This is a question that I love to ask people, and I still do to this day. I ask the final question that I ask people is I say, what's your relationship like now with this movie? And that's led to some really touching moments. One of my favorites is Felissa Rose in Sleepaway Camp at the end of that documentary. And I had known Felissa for years. We had had this wonderful day of hanging out and the interview was so good and got to see your kids again and everything. And here comes this moment where we shared all this stuff. And I ask her that question and she starts crying and she's like, it gave me everything. It gave me my husband. It gave me my kids. Ultimately, it's it's given me the life that I have. And I'm so grateful. And she just looks at me at the end, smiles and sort of just like this look of acknowledgement, like there's no clearer way to say this. But this movie has given me everything I have is such an incredible moment with Eric. I ask him that question and he pauses and he looks down at the, and he, and he sort of looks off to the side and he goes, you know, I wish it was another guy on screen because, you know, Eric is very hard on himself. Mm-hmm. And he says, I wish it was another guy on the screen. And he goes, but I get it. I think I get it. I mean, it's just amazing that these, that, that people care about it like they do. And, you know, I, I think I get it. 
And then he stares off at the floor. And I didn't catch this moment until I was cutting it together. I was sitting with the editor that I, that's when I was, I would still hire editors for, you know, and love sitting with them and teaming up on assembling this stuff and so many fun and long days and nights. We're sitting there and we're trying to, we're getting to this. And I knew I wanted his final thing about getting it to be the, the punctuation at the end of the sentence that was this documentary. And I'm watching the footage and I realized that. And so you hear me say cut. And then the camera kind of unsettles a little bit because the DP was, after I say cut, he's touching his camera and, you know, getting, getting it turned off. But Eric is staring at the floor in this moment. And you just see this, this, this whole experience resonating with him because we had done the commentary the day before. We were about to shoot his script on the return to the character of Ricky. And, and, and this is after years of him not even knowing that he had a fan base at all, let alone that anyone gave a shit about this movie. And so I, I left that in. I left it in all the way until the camera cuts off. And I did hear from a couple of people like, do you know that you left you, at the end? It gets shaky and you hear you saying cut. But to me, when you watch that documentary, that last moment where he's sort of staring at the floor after saying, I get it. I really feel like that was the moment where he really did get it, where this was sinking in that this is real. This is happening. And this is so much bigger than he ever anticipated it being. And Eric and I became dear friends from this experience. And then getting to shoot him as Ricky. After this emotional thing, we get set, set, torn down. We go to set up in the location for the interview for, for the Ricky today is what he called it. This short. And I had done, I had searched high and low to find the right shirt, the right pants and the right shoes hmm. for him to play Ricky again. Cause you know, the first shot of him in the movie is panning up from those slip on shoes. Mm-hmm. And I had to get, I, I just had to get it all right because I was shooting him as Ricky. So the story of this short that he wrote, Ricky Today, is Ricky is being interviewed again, off by the the other person is off camera, who is actually me. And he's contemplating. He's like, and it's very meta. He's like, I heard there's a movie made about what happened. I I think that there's a truth that needs to be told here. And he says, and he starts getting a little riled up as he's like, you don't know what it was like to grow up how I grew up and all this and he starts getting really upset and then he what's insinuated is he gets up and he attacks me and then you hear a siren like an alarm going off like he's breaking out of the place and that was to lead to his sequel right but he walks out of the bathroom in the wardrobe as ricky so here's eric who doesn't look much different at all than he did Mm -hmm. back then Mm -hmm. and he walks out in the outfit and i was just it was one of those pinch me moments like oh my god now now i'm the one saying like this is happening I'm going to be, I'm going to be one of two people who have directed Eric Freeman as Ricky. And it was so fucking exciting. Lucky man. And he was so great. And he was, I mean, it was this tiny little set that we had and he was very nervous and I kind of, he was so sweet. I have all the outtakes for it too, that we'll do something with. It might even be part of the finding Freeman if Scott and I get that finished, but he was very self-conscious and very hard on himself because even though he had written the script, he he would like if he would miss a line or something he'd be very hard on himself and so there's photos and footage of me like i'm sitting in front of him like on my knees and we're just talking through confidence talking through how natural this character is for him and i'm by no means any director but our connection led us into something special that day a couple times 
And that little piece right there, I think, is really unique. And it's something that's not really talked about too much. And, but um, and then Lee Harry, not to make this whole discussion tonight about this, but Lee Harry, the director, is a guy who has been dismissed because of the movie. And it didn't really do a lot of favors for his career. Now, he is one of the most prolific trailer cutters and editor, trailer editors for all the studios mm -hmm. out there. So he's making a great living. Pulls up in his Tesla. You know, but a lot of people look at him and shrug him off like, oh, he's he did that half a movie. But what I found in him was this amazing story of a true passion for film that went back to, to when he was a kid. And I'm sure I talked about this in the interview that you listened to about how when I was interviewing him, he told me about these home movies that he and his friends would make where they're shooting, getting shot with bows and arrows and. They'd have a claymation monster chasing him around the house and all this stuff. And I was just like, wow, he's been doing this since he was a kid, but no one knows this. As I'm, we're editing this thing together, I message him and I'm like, is there any chance that footage exists? And he thought, no way. He said, well, let me go to my folks' house and see if they have anything. And he ended up finding it in the attic in a box. Oh, that's and awesome. And so he messages me like two hours later and says, I'm at their house, I'm in the attic, and I, Justin, I found a box. And he sends me a picture and it's like got these little reels in it. I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. And so he goes, I have all the, obviously all the transfer equipment necessary. He said, I'll be back at the office in about an hour and uh, you'll hear from me soon. Next thing I know, these little emails start popping up with these little, these little files. Some of them 15 seconds long, some of them a minute, two minutes. It's exactly as he described it where his, the bow and arrow getting shot, blood spurting from the chest of his brother. He made one with a claymation rock that was chasing him around the house as a kid, this stop motion rock <laughs> chasing him. I mean, it's so sincere and so real. And the fact that the footage exists, I was like, there, this, this documentary has to begin with that. And so at the, at the very beginning, you hear his voice and, and he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he goes like, man, I, I have been in love with film since I was little. And then you hear the Super 8 camera rolling. And then it starts cutting to scenes of him as a kid with the bow and arrow and the blood and everything. It's all this, as he's telling the stories, you're seeing it. So it, for me, it became like we want to validate, not, not that it validates, not that he ever was invalidated, but we I, I was so excited to, to have people discover Lee Harry. Now and to see, awesome to see him as something more. And that's what this, and, and he was handed an impossible assignment with that movie where the guy who had got the rights to it handed him the first film and told him, rearrange this, make it less violent, and let's make a new movie out of it. And Lee's like, <laughs> that is absolutely insane. And it, we can't. One of the do weirdest that. requests I've ever heard oh, to do with film. It's, can it's you, unbelievable. Isn't it? And I mean, for a producer to even think that that could happen is is absolutely asinine but then lee goes what if what if you give us a little bit of money and a couple days we'll write a script and we'll shoot some stuff and we'll 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 make a movie out of this and the guy goes okay and he gives him a few thousand bucks and a few days and the next thing you know lee and his writing partner were crafting this thing and you would think on the schedule they were on you'd think it'd be worse actually you would, you would for the time and the money and the, I mean, just the, the, the whole thing just seems like a setup for failure. Despite that, he, Lee shows up to one of our meetings with a binder full 
of Polaroids. They had gone to the locations he was going to shoot at, and they storyboarded the whole thing out. And they also did photo storyboards. So when they arrived on set, they knew they were going to have a short schedule. So he already knew what the shots and the angles were going to be because they had already shot it with a still camera. And so he was able to more efficiently craft this thing on the because it's in a really ambitious movie within a movie. If you think about it, it's mm-hmm. got rain machine. It's got the umbrella stunt. It's got the electrocution stunt. Yeah. It has all this stuff. Not to mention that insane car stunt that almost murdered yeah, the stunt guy. I, yeah, the car yeah. explosion and, and almost hit barely the stunt. <laughs> all of that happened in like a week. And and with so short a window of time to prep. So what people might see at face value as a movie that's half a movie is what I have found in my decade plus of doing this, like writing for the magazines and stuff, the most ambitious and thoroughly <laughs> conceptualized movie that I've ever had the pleasure of working on i mean it really is one of the top projects that i've ever done just because it's such a rich story behind it from everybody and liz who's in the movie she has been in retirement forever she's now an animal activist living in africa and traveling the world fighting for animal causes and stuff but she it's a good example to my point earlier that i made about like oliver stone she this was an early movie for her that has meant so much and so she came out of the woodwork to be a part of it because she was just so pumped that it was happening. And, um, I mean, that disc, I'm so glad you brought that one up because, man, I've been so honored to work on all this stuff. And there have been some really awesome projects. But this one is so close to my heart because, in a way, I was handed an impossible project. Here's a movie that no one takes seriously. See what you can do. And... um and this was also back when Shout was allowing me to do full-length documentaries. Because mm-hmm. the documentary on that's like an hour and a half long. It's yeah, longer than yeah. the movie. Now they like it to be individual interviews, standalone interviews. Because it, you know, it's, it's more content, I guess you could say. Which does offer the opportunity to get deeper with a lot of these people on their stories. That's something that would not make sense in the scope of a normal standard documentary structure. But man, do I miss doing this. I miss assembling these things where I bring everyone together and it becomes a coherent, cohesive narrative through all these different voices. And I've never had a better time assembling something like that than I did on Silent Night 2. Well, take it from me, who is a, who is a consumer of this type of, of media? Like I told you before we even started recording that you coming on the show, I got to look in to see, you know, what are, what are some other Shout Factory releases that I don't have and wound up buying six or seven of them on Amazon uh, yeah. just a couple of days ago. We like that type of content. You know, I'm not about just how much can you cram in there and, and give me a, just a, a bunch of little quick interviews and stuff. The whole reason I even went out and bought the Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 Blu-ray is from hearing you on HMP and talking about this documentary. I was like, I've got to see this. Oh. And so that's why I went out and, and bought it and watched it. And this is, like I said, three or four years ago. It was right as it had had come out i believe mm-hmm. but yeah uh, i mean same same here and you've sold me if you can find the alligator from alligator like i will buy the <laughs> i will buy the alligator dvd so i can see what happens because i need to know but you have to track it down and i will be a part of it if you need me to oh that's very nice it's awesome but it's exciting it's it, once you start on these things it's really exciting and the other thing that was happening at that time too on silent night too because i did the first one and I had a long history with the people who owned it because I had been part of getting it into theatrical re-release 
several years prior to the first one. It, it, it's, it's very personal for me, the whole thing. Both of those movies are. It was a time when I had fewer projects on my plate, too. In some ways, it was... I, I, was, I was wearing lots of hats for lots of different jobs, writing for a bunch of magazines and things. So my focus wasn't quite as, as <laughs> narrow. But it also gave me time to really dive deep on this one. And so the experience was r- extra rich just because at the time, I think it was the only title that I was working on in the window that, it, that I did it. So I was kind of living it. And mm-hmm. that's a really special thing. Now, I mean, it's all special. It's all wonderful. But when you're on so many projects at the same time, I'm, I still try to get to the same depth and I still invest in, in the same way. But by the nature of the beast, I don't have just a sole focus to sort of dance with this one girl. And uh, that's one thing that I, that I really treasure about this time when this disc came out is that I had the chance to do that. Well, I sent my copy of it across uh, the country to California and Eric signed it for me and, and, and sent it back. And so I've got it sitting up here and then we met Linnea Quigley yeah. at Scarefest and I took Silent Night, Deadly Night. And so I've got them sitting up there beside uh, the Sleepaway Camp uh, yeah. version that you worked on and Felissa signed that for me. So Aww. got a little collection up here of of things that you worked on and and or a part of which is is pretty cool did you get the figure did you get the ricky figure that we did that NECA did for that i didn't get that i need to look into getting it eric was telling us that on his website he sells the garbage cans as well he signs and sends out he said i i don't he's like i don't understand it he's like but they sell pretty good so i'm (laughs) gonna keep doing them it was hilarious (laughs) oh it's been amazing to see him embrace this it's the it's such a special thing and and really kudos to Justin Powell, kudos to Scott Perlman for for helping him come around because it was those two guys who really did it for the rest of us. They did the work for for the rest of us. And then I just got the good fortune to walk in and have a chance to, to sit down and do what we did. So, yeah, man, it's awesome. And he's such a good dude. Eric is just such a good soul. He's really nice. He gave me yeah. that, that Christmas after that was done. That was like 2018 when that came out. I went to dinner with him, him, Eric, and with Scott. I, was, I had been shooting all week in L.A., and it was like my last night there. And it was Christmas time, obviously. And, we ha- and um, he brought me a mug with uh, it's um, on it. It has him sticking the umbrella through the guy, and it's like a print <laughs> on the mug, almost like a home print. I know he didn't do it at home, but it's like you know something pretty inexpensive uh-huh. printed, and it says like Silent Night, Deadly Night Two or SNDN Two or something. And he and he signed it really sweet message on the bottom and put a date on it. But I thought it was so nice of him to be yeah so th- so course. thoughtful to bring me something like that, which is one of my tre- treasured keepsakes. And I don't even put it out because I keep it in a box where it's. Uh, maybe someday i'll have an appropriate cabinet to keep it protected in but i would be so scared of that thing to break right just just means the world get accidentally knocked off something like that yeah you you answered one of the questions that i was going to ask so i'll just say is there another moment like this i was going to ask hey what what was your oh shit moment where you were like i can't believe i'm actually getting to do this and you know you just said uh shooting eric as ricky was one of those but do you have another one where just during your career you're like man i just i can't believe this is happening this is such a cool thing to be working on um yeah i've had i've had a number of those i i don't really get starstruck 
there are some times when someone walks in the room and even if you've talked to them on the phone, they're still like, whoa, this is, we're here and this is happening right now. I remember, well, one that was a long time in the coming was Kurt Russell on Breakdown. I did Breakdown for Paramount last year, which was an incredible experience because I, I love that movie. I love Kurt Russell. I was supposed to interview him for Fangoria like 10 years ago and it fell through and I was always heartbroken about that. And then when I got Escape from L.A. for Scream a couple years ago, I wanted him for that, but he was too busy to do that. It's just like the paths kept missing each other, like ships in the night kind of thing. Finally, on Breakdown, which came together beautifully. I mean, there's so much material on there. That's one where we found like uh, an entire opening sequence that no one had seen before in the archives, Paramount Archives. But getting him to come in for commentary with Jonathan Mostow, the director, was such a moment. I mean, he shows, because it was on the Paramount lot, actually the Technicolor stage in the Paramount lot is where I got him, because this was COVID too. And and um, I that was another one, kind of like Eric, the day of the commentary, I was like, I'm not certain he's going to show up. Kurt, the Kurt thing had been so, it seemed cursed almost in a way, because it had just kept failing. And lo and behold, Kurt's here, Kurt's here. You start hearing it over the walkie-talkies and stuff, and the next thing you know, there he is. And uh, it's just an incredible track, a, a really wonderful experience. Uh, one day, Shout Factory came to me and said that th- we were talking about some other titles, and they mentioned Monsters Go Home, Monster Go Home, which was the, the first Monster movie. Mm-hmm. And they were going to do it as a disc, and they were going to release it bare bones. And I'm like, whoa, I think I'm almost certain that I can get Butch Patrick for that. And I, and, and I know Rob Zombie, and I, and I know Rob's a huge monsters fan i mean that's like a that's kind of the the core of the well for him and his creative output is all roads lead back to the monsters so i was can probably get robbed for this too and that's exactly what happened so i next thing i know about a month later i'm in a studio butch walks in rob walks in but rob and i were just like two fanboys just googly-eyed over butch patrick being there and and we just had the most fanboy conversation with him over the running time of the movie, which was really special and kind of an unusual track. I don't think a lot of people would expect if they go to pick up Monster Go Home that Rob Zombie's on there. That turned out amazing. One of the most prized moments that I still cannot believe was when I was working on The Last Castle for Paramount. Have you seen The Last Castle, either of you? I weirdly have. I have a yep. friend who passed away when we were in college that actually went to be in it and was in the last castle so i he was an extra he was an extra this is a true story like like one of the guys in the yard or something yeah he was a a soldier right yep no he was a prison guard yeah not a soldier he was a prison guard and i watched it because he was in it but he passed away many years ago it's actually a really sad story but yes i have seen the last castle well, this is a movie that this is Robert Redford, James Gandolfini. Yeah. I mean, Mark Ruffalo. What an incredible lineup. And a lot of people go, well, why haven't I heard of it? And it's a movie that suffered a terrible fate because when they, it's a movie about a, this general who gets sent to a military prison and there's essentially kind of leads a revolt there against, and that's played by Robert Redford. James Gandolfini is the heavy, he's the, the overbearing warden who's making life hell for all these guys. Well, this movie was being cut, and while it was in, in post, 9-11 happened. 
Mm-hmm. And they already had their promotional images out. Well, what was their promotional image campaign? It was around a flag being flown upside down between two burning towers on the <laughs> on the prison. And so they immediately had to recall everything. In fact, I have it's it's a press kit that can, that they put out on the film, which had already been done at the point where this these were being sent out. And there's a card. In fact, I have it sitting right in front of me. Ironically enough, that says, please note that the CDs and CD covers which depict our teaser campaign for The Last Castle were printed prior to the tragic events of September 11th. We apologize for any concern this may cause. So they were stuck with a movie that's amazing and that has an incredible lineup of people involved with it, top-lined by one of the greatest movie stars of all time in Robert Redford, but it's a movie about the hardest thing for people to talk about in the wake of this tragedy. So the, the studio, it, it kind of it kind wasn't of shelved. It. It, it, yeah, it, it, they, they put and, it out, but it, but it was almost timidly. And me and T-Man have talked about this multiple times. It was, and even if, even if they would have done a mass release, how popular would it have been? Probably not at all. Like not at that probably, time. Probably, and it's because of the environment, yeah. People not because it's not a good movie, just people wouldn't have gone and seen it. Here's, here's my story relating to The Last Castle. So Paramount brings me on to this thing. And if I have an extra copy somewhere, I'll send it to you. Because I mean for your friend and his memory. Um, but I, you need to have this. So I get the gig and I got when I started putting the pieces together on it, it was clear that Gandolfini obviously had passed on at that point. Ruffalo was so busy. He was, I don't know what he was doing at the time, but he was, I don't know, he was swamped. But I got the director, Rod Lurie, involved with it. And one of the things that we found, and he mentioned in the interview, Rod did, there was a scene that was shot that was never put into the movie. And it was a final sequence where it was the military funeral of Redford's character. And they, didn't, and they never even assembled it. Because, obviously, you know, like I said, they were in post when this thing was being cut. I mean, when, when 9-11 happened. So they were in the middle of assembling this thing, and they just left all the stuff from that day on the floor. They're like, <laughs> we're not even going to touch this. We're not going to, because, yeah, we're, yeah, we're going to put this movie out, but we can't put it out and have it end that way. It cannot be a funeral to end this thing at this time. I go to the archive team, and I'm like, it, does any of this exist? I was looking for stills from it. All I wanted were some stills so I could run them over Lurie talking about it. And, and there was nothing on the inventory sheets about having anything. There were some photos, but not from that day. The archive team, I was working with them on a different project, and I pulled like on the side to one of the guys there, and I'm like, is there anything, like, can you search, search, like walk in the room and search to see? Anyway, long story long, they found all the takes on that day. So that footage that normally would just be thrown away, because why archive it? It's not even part of the movie. It wasn't yeah. even built into the film. It's literally, it's, it's, it's the film from that day and just the takes of that day, of all the different angles and everything. And so I had this, I, I said, can you guys send it to me? I'd like to cut this in to this interview thing. And so they had it transferred, they had it mastered, and they sent it to me. And I was just, it's such an emotional thing. And his daughter has handed the flag and she had this conf- conflicted relationship with him. You'll remember from the movie. It, it's a really, it's a powerful moment and you're hearing taps and seeing his coffin and it's, it's beautifully shot. 
there was audio with it. So it was just one day I got this hair. I'm like, what if I assemble this? And without even consulting with Paramount or anything, because I assumed it would go nowhere, I start cutting the scene together. I'm choosing which takes seemed good, uh, you know, which angles, the timing and the rhythm of people moving and cleaning up the audio as best I could. So I assembled this scene and I sent it to the executive that I was working with on that one inside Paramount. I'm like, hey, I was just messing around with this. I mean, I'm probably just going to cut bits and pieces of it in, but I just wanted you to see it in full just because no one will ever probably see this in full. And he saw it and he was like, oh, my God, man, I'm sending this to marketing now. And I was like, whoa, 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 I don't want to get in trouble here. I, I didn't get any permission to be fucking around with the ending <laughs> of this Robert Redford Gandolfini <laughs> movie. <laughs> and the, the last thing I want to do is shoot myself in the foot with this relationship with you guys. And so he's like, no, it's cool. Like, don't worry. And this guy has since gone on to be the head of theatrical, by the way. So now he has all this sway there. But at that time, I mean, I was legitimately scared. And he came back like two days later. He's like, everybody really loves this. And we want to put it on the disc. And legal has cleared it. Uh, and I was like, what? Awesome. So now if you buy... The Last Castle on Blu-ray included in there is the never-before-seen, never-before-assembled final sequence, the military funeral and of uh, Irwin, which is Redford's character. And you, yeah. and you get to, and, and unbelievably, this is a pinch-me moment to your question. This is the most direct <laughs> response I could have for this. I cannot believe that I got to assemble a scene in a movie of this caliber and have it included on there. I just, I'm still just awestruck. And you know what? What I, funny enough, that was that disc came out a year ago, today. Huh? We're we're speaking because it popped up in my Facebook memories this morning. I was like, holy crap! That's been a year already. One year ago today is when this thing came out, and and then I was just floored, and I still am. I, I look at the disc sitting on the shelf. I just can't believe it. So I'll send you a copy of it because I think I have an extra one. No, yeah, that that'd is- be. That, that's on. that's awesome gabe this is already the the best thing that real talk has ever done just to get that story on the one-year anniversary so we're, 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 crazy we're timing. slowly it's moving up good timing you know because we've never hit our other timings we're like way off on like a month late but so we nailed this timing and that story was i love that. like i got i got kind of chills for a second i was like man i wish something like that would i thought you were gonna say i'm i'm the only one that has ever seen that scene i thought that's how you were gonna end it but then uh. It's even it was a better even cooler. story that, yeah. That, yeah. And then it happened, you know, and another thing that was similar and that I, and this is a much shorter story. So uh, the, when I was working on bad news bears, I was interviewing Jackie Earl Haley, who's the icon of that movie. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. during my conversation with him, he made a similar mention to what Harry did. Lee Harry did for silent night Two, where he's at in passing at one point goes, Oh, and then there was this day my dad was on set. I, he had just given me the Super 8 camera, and he was running around shooting stuff, and they made him put it away. They didn't want him shooting things. And I, in the moment, I was like, it almost didn't register with me. But then by the end of the conversation, I had scribbled down a note, like, ask about this, this Super 8 footage. Well, I asked him, and he's like, you know, I think we could probably find it. He was more confident than Lee was. He did find it. He had it transferred. His wife did the transfer and they sent it to me to look at. And it's, if you, do you know Bad News Bears? Do you remember that movie very well? Yeah. The one with Walter, Walter Matthau. Yeah. Walter Matthau. Mm -hmm. Yep. And Jackie Earl Haley, who went on to play 
you know, like the, the new Freddy and a bunch of other stuff. But this was when he was a kid and he was a real sort of like hooligan star as a result of his turn in this movie as his character, Kelly Leak. And it's such a great movie. I mean, it's one of those timeless movies that is very much of its era, but also timeless. And a lot of it has to do with him. A lot of it has to do with, I don't know. Anyway, it's a great, it's a great movie, but there's this key mo- moment at the very beginning of the film where Matthau's character, Buttermaker is this coach who does not want to be working with these kids. And he's sitting in his car, taking a pull from some booze and just like looking out at this baseball field, thinking like, God, what has happened to my life? Why am I here? What is that? You know, he doesn't want to be there. He gets a cig- cigarette out or a cigar, I think it's a cigar. And you see this hand enter frame with a lighter, flicks it open, lights the thing, and then rides off. And it's, it's uh, Jackie playing this character, Kelly Leak, and he's on this motorcycle. He puts his sunglasses up and then drives off. Well, it was that scene where his dad happened to be on set shooting this Super 8 footage. And I'm the first person to be seeing this. There is no behind-the-scenes footage from Bad News Bears, one of the most yeah. celebrated movies of all time. It just doesn't exist. Well, I'm seeing the only, what has to be the only behind-the-scenes footage because they were forbidden from even shooting this. Mm-hmm. And I sent it on to Paramount. It's probably like maybe three minutes long, and it's him riding his motorcycle around. You're seeing everybody, Walter Matthau, the crew. It's, it's this incredible little three-minute time capsule. And the long story short, Paramount saw it, loved it, somehow managed to clear it legally, and we were able to include it. So there is, so if you buy Bad News Bears, there's this behind-the-scenes footage that could have remained in James Earl Haley's, you know, bedroom storage or whatever, had we not discussed it. And that's the fact awesome. that, and that's another further testament to Paramount's, just like similar to Shout Factory's dedication to these films and preserving their legacies and making really less than obvious moves like being willing to include this kind of stuff it's really outstanding that those things were able to happen it yeah. really makes you wonder what else is what else out could there. be out there that's just not been unearthed yeah. yet and, and and honestly may never be yeah yeah and how much has been lost like you yeah you say yeah. may never be there are plenty of things that that won't see the light of day again and that's really sad but that's why those of us who are fortunate enough to come close to these things, when we get the chance to do this stuff, it's like th- there really should be no breaks. There shouldn't be a point where we go enough is enough until we're at deadline or something, because there's no reason to stop cataloging. There's no reason to stop shooting yeah. or stop recording. You just push it to the end, get as many people in there as you can by any means. Yes, some may be by Zoom. Some are, Most are going to look good and sound amazing, but the point isn't that. You don't look back at historical artifacts and think gee i wish this was a little more polished you think jesus christ i can't believe i'm holding this and that's the whole story with this stuff is just it's get as capture as much of this as we can and that's what i'm honored to get the chance to do every day and then to cut it all together and assemble the stories and it's just a tremendous honor it's so amazing one of the things that that i'm interested in and hopefully able to do we were talking about Maybe around Halloween time, there's this really old little theater here in Bowling Green called the the Kentucky Theater. And we were like, man, what if we rented that out, did the double feature, celebrated the podcast, you know, had yeah. had try to have some people come in that we, we interact with, you know, some of our listeners or, or, or whomever. And I saw as I was 
doing a little bit of research for the episode and, and figuring out some of the other stuff that you were doing that I believe you had have done some screenings and things at the at the TCL Chinese Theater in LA. Yeah. So I I'm curious about that. Like what are what what goes into that and you know what are some of the screenings that you've done? Because I I've been in LA my my wife she wasn't my wife at the time but she was at uh, ucla out there studying and I, mm-hmm. I i flew out and did some touristy things and watched a movie there and i just thought that was so cool that you know you were you were doing some indie screenings uh you well know, that's another there. that's another pinch me thing and that that actually ties back to when i was through okay so i was working on this article for Fangoria on the Halloween four through six arc. And I met producer Malik Akkad, who's Mustafa Akkad's son, who has been helming the franchise since his dad passed away. And then Malik and I hit it off huge. And we were very fast friends. And I, long story short, I ended up becoming a vice president in the company and running the website. I was VP of new media. So I was handling licensing and working with merchandising people and all this stuff. And one of the things that I did while I was there was came up with the idea of getting Halloween, the original back in theaters. We were able to find a partner in screen vision that uh, tackle this with us, which was no small feat finding someone who even was interested. Cause this is kind of prior to a wide release revival screenings, which now they do all the time, but it wasn't common for a movie. In fact, some of these different, even theater chains are like that movie's too old no it's just not going to do anything for people and we eventually found a partner in screen vision which you know these guys there were total horror nerds and very much lovers of halloween and so anyway we got halloween back in theaters and they we wanted to do some extra content for it and so i did this documentary short called you can't kill the boogeyman and that ran before the movie in all the theaters around the world and it was about the cultural presence of the boogeyman around the globe and how in the United States, maybe the most famous face of the boogeyman is Michael Myers, which is commercialized and like this whole other kind of entity. It was a little thing that ran before the movie, but it was a very proud thing for me. And I remember when that movie came out, when, when Halloween first landed in theaters, Malik and I went to the first screening at the Chinese. And I still have the ticket from it. Here I am sitting at the Chinese theater. And then my documentary, my short, my documentary comes up on screen at the Chinese theater. And I just sat there just like (laughs) complete disbelief. This is another one of those what is happening moments where I I was just really struck by the moment and and the power of it. And, um, And then seeing Halloween there getting a chance to see it. I mean, that movie didn't really have a good proper release when it first came out in a lot of places. And certainly was, you know, I was two years old when that movie came out. So Mm -hmm. nothing I ever saw in the theater outside of some revival screenings uh, locally at a couple of theaters over the years, but it was really neat to see that. And so that was the first taste of that. If my timeline is correct. And then there's a revered group called Holly shorts like Hollywood, but Holly shorts. And they do a screening series all around Los Angeles that is short films from around the world. And they're curated by this fantastic team who then present them at these special screenings, usually bringing some people in 
to do a Q&A or maybe the filmmakers show up. But when I first met these guys, they had contacted me to come out and host a screening of Halloween 2. It was in October of, I can't even remember what year. And, and so I assembled, I brought together some cast and crew members, Rick Rosenthal and Nancy Stevens, his wife, they came and uh, a couple, uh, Gloria Gifford. And it was a really fantastic screening, but I hit it off really well with these Holly Shorts people. What ended up happening was uh, I presented them with the concept a couple years later of doing a screening series at the Chinese theater that would be twice a year and it would be all horror genre stuff. It'd be shorts and I wouldn't charge a fee for people to be a part of it. Like a lot of film festivals do. It would just be for the good of the genre, for the good of these independent filmmakers and to give them that chance to have that moment that I had sitting in that theater, seeing my name up on the screen, which really took a backseat to just the whole thing. And, um, but, it, you know, this really grounding and incredibly powerful moment of being in there and like feeling like something had happened. And I wanted others to experience that, too. And so they were totally on board with it. And uh, we put together. I mean, and then from there, it was kind of the ball was in my court to get the word out about it and find a way to have people send the submissions in. And then I put together these screening events where. And these filmmakers would travel to L.A. from wherever they lived just because of the, the weight of knowing their movie was playing in that theater in that town was enough to draw them in there. And so, I mean, there's some really special moments relating to that. The very last one I couldn't be a part of. And that really was heartbreaking for me. I, I had my friend Pat host that, who's an amazing guy, Pat Jankowitz, who's a fountain of knowledge about film and, and, a, and the perfect kind of boisterous personality to host something like that but it's really special all these people got the opportunity to see their movie there or at least if they couldn't make it know that it was playing within those walls is something that i think is still very special to filmmakers it's kind of like madison square garden is to a wrestler or a band you know this is mm, hall yeah. hallowed halls and the tcl is very much that so that's my Chinese theater story a uh, couple couple times that I've had things in there and that screening series was just another unbelievable thing that happened yeah, my favorite classic Hollywood actor is Humphrey Bogart and that mm. was so cool you know to go to his 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 square mm -hmm. there and you know put my hands and feet hands. where you know he was it was it was it was really cool to see that yeah. that was one of the highlights of my my trips was was going down there to that and and then seeing a movie now unfortunately i think i saw maybe jurassic world there sure. which i think that's what was playing when we when we went to go see it but not a huge fan of that movie but the the theater experience was just was just fantastic just being there oh. you know it's really cool yeah yeah it's really uh, it's really amazing it's a really special place and it's a thing that hollywood for a country like the united states isn't really all that great generally about preserving things they right. you know, we we're quick to tear down a building to replace it with something more modern etc mm -hmm. somehow hollywood has found a way in various ways 
to celebrate the past and that walk of fame and especially in front of the Chinese theater with the hand and footprints and all that, that gives people such a personal direct experience with history and with icons that they look up to. I just think it's so important to have that because otherwise going to LA is just such a touristy thing. Mm-hmm. But but that that experience that you had is something wholly different. The getting the chance to put your hand in Humphreys handprint and things like that uh, that's such a cool story and I, I just think it's so neat that they continue to add those squares they continue to put people on there and add them to the walk of fame and it's really awesome it's a really special area of town so do you have a a dream project that you're 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 really and if you can't say you know, if you've got something in the works that's fine but do you have a, a project or a, a movie that you just you really want to work on you really want to see it be released under um, some of these companies that you have this relationship with well i there there are a few that have happened and i miss them Night of the Demons for Shout Factory. I had done a, an exhaustive retrospective on the Night of the Demons franchise years prior for Fangoria. But they did, and they did the Blu-ray without knowing I had all these connections and stuff. That was kind of heartbreaking just because I was like, oh, I could have brought so many people to the table on this. And I love that movie. Another one was the first Paramount Presents title, which was King Creole, which is Elvis's, I think, Elvis's best movie. I really treasure that film and would have given anything to be on that disc, but that predated my relationship with them. So now I can just look back wistfully at that. (laughs) But there are some movies that I've been championing for a long time. Some of them have happened. Sepoy Camp was one that I took to Shout Factory, actually. Uh, And that was really special to be a part of. Body Bags was another one. John Carpenter and Toby Hooper's Body Bags which turned out really nice as well. But there are some movies like Bringing Out the Dead. Martin Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead is the one that I talk about the most because it's Martin Scorsese. I mean, can, the thought that there's any film of his that hasn't made it beyond DVD is, is kind of mind-boggling. But that's a movie that also happens to star John Goodman, Nicolas Cage, Bing Rames, I mean, the lineup of people that are involved with this movie is unbelievable. <laughs> and it's Martin Scorsese directing this thing. It's this insane fever dream of a film that I think is so incredible and a really unique movie that completely stands on its own. It's one of those rare things that you cannot even put into a category. It's just its own thing. And for a long time, I've been playing that tune, I guess you could say, to anyone who, I, who would hear it. And when I first got on at Paramount... In, in all of my early conversations, I'm sure to the annoyance of the executives I was working with, I kept pointing back to that. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, and after this one, it became kind of a joke. Like, well, let's make sure that we can try to get bringing out the dead. Oh, we don't know. So I don't know. It's, it's still, it, that's always going to be in the front seat for me, that movie. That's one that I think really should be in an expanded release and uh, i'm not going to stop being annoying about it until it actually comes out so i'm going to answer with bringing out the dead because i've been championing that for for years now and that's something i'm not going to back down from trying to make happen do you think that the criterion might eventually try to do that because they're you know they've released the martin scorsese shorts and they're they're starting to get into some of his films i wonder if they they might try to try to do it maybe 
Paramount has been getting back a lot of the licensed films from Criterion. So when they're like Harold and Maude, for example, I did that one last year, which was another insane story. I mean, behind the production on that, but that, and, and it was just such an exciting movie to be a part of because it was so groundbreaking, but, but Criterion had a very good release of that out. Paramount opted as they have been doing for the last couple of years now, not to relicense after the, the option is up with a criterion because of the paramount presents line and two paramount finally is really on board with going into the archive and re-releasing stuff like a last castle last castle got wide release that blu-ray was in walmart and that i mean for a movie that had no legs when it first came out it somehow got this second life now and that was a wide release where paramount presents is only through independent stores and amazon you're not going to find any paramount present stuff sitting in best buy for example or walmart but um some of them do get to the wide release so paramount's also famously late to the dance on this which Mm -hmm. is kind of it was a frustrating thing for us fans for many years especially with friday the 13th as they cranked out dvds with the wrong killer on the cover and (laughs) all this other (laughs) shit that was wrong (laughs) and bare bones you know they just didn't seem to understand well now they do and i when and when i say that i mean that i mean my stories tonight illustrate their dedication to right, this stuff right. they're, they're not just cranking these things out to make a buck they're really investing in them and realize that they can do something special with these titles that criterion has released and freshen them up and um so i don't know what the future holds for like a bringing out the dead but they certainly have someone inside their walls now in me pushing to to make it happen within our little framework mm-hmm. um, but it would be great if it goes to criterion okay cool i just want it to happen but it sure would be a hell of a thrill to be a part of if i could because i also love nicholas cage i love scorsese yeah i did all, an all intro yeah. i did a, an intro to the dolce vita with scorsese last year and um, it, so i'm i'm ready for more and I think that would be the perfect project to have be the next frontier. You mentioned this earlier, and I didn't want to let the conversation go by without bringing this up because there's not, from my understanding, there's not too many of us out there. But I am a huge Halloween 6 Curse of mm-hmm. Michael Myers fan. Mm-hmm. It was the first rated R movie that I, I saw in theaters. And I think that that kind of that adds a layer of nostalgia to the film, but I actually, actually truly really like the film. I think that Michael is very scary in that movie. And of course, a few years later, I think it came out in 95, I believe. And a few years later on eBay, you could bootleg purchase the producer's cut. Yep. And I ordered it and it was about 25 bucks. And I had, obviously I was still in high school or just entering high school and I didn't have a lot of money. So $25, that was a big deal to me. And I ordered it on Mm -hmm. eBay. And of course the producer's cut came in. It was uh, on a VHS. The VHS was completely blank. There was no artwork or anything involved in it. Just, just a total bootleg, but the copy was really good. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I got to see it and I've always had this fascination with the movie because the story of that one is another crazy story how they pretty much they shot a movie and then they went back and changed nearly half of yeah. the film because they didn't yeah. they didn't like it and you had some really crazy stuff with Loomis getting the curse of thorn and all that yeah, yeah. it's it's 
it's sure it's nonsensical. It's all over the place. But at the same time, I've always found it really interesting. And I have not got to see, you know, this, the, the version that, did you say that you had worked on some of that? I didn't, earlier I didn't you, work on, no. I mean, first of all, let me say that I had this, I had a bootleg of it too. The, the bootleg tape that I had, it had a blue sticker on the spine and it had, I think it had a, like a, a time code running at the bottom of it the whole time, but I was just yep. so excited to be seeing it. And I remember at that time too, that was the, that's, I was really getting into trying to track down rare movies or rare versions of films. And I remember around that same time, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Next Generation came out. Yes. And there was the alternate version of that, that I also had, and probably from the same seller, I don't know, but it was, it then uh, returned to the living dead uncut. There was a mm-hmm. version of that, that I had on that tape. And then I got into, I don't know, like some crazy Japanese deathmatch wrestling tapes. And <laughs> it was this this crazy world of stuff like Necromantic 1 and 2 that I that I thought at the time. Now that's changed, but no company is going to release this here. But this is, this is the only way I'm going to be able to see this. And so these tapes were treasures to me, no matter how shitty they look. I, I was also fascinated by Halloween 6. And I remember seeing in the theater and walking out just like, that was not at all what I expected. I didn't know what I expected, but I was a huge Halloween fan and I was, I was, uh, I was kind of blown away and also aghast at the same time. Cause I was like, what is this cult shit? What, what all is happening here? <laughs> and what, so I didn't know what to make of it, but I definitely was smitten with the movie and there's so many great things in that, in that film and Pleasance is, wonderful and it's sad mm-hmm. hearing him off in the distance and dying at the end and mm-hmm. uh, there's there's just so many unique elements to it and it seemed to take the mythology seriously do something different with it i didn't get a chance to work on that one the halloween box set experience there's this whole backstory with that that i won't bore you with but i was very excited initially when they contacted me about doing it and i had all these crazy ideas and got all these things in motion and then a some pieces moved on it and um so i didn't end up doing it at all i wasn't part of that box set whatsoever other than when i was working back at trancus films i did produce the halloween four and five blu-rays that the first blu-rays that came out in like 2000 and what year that would have been 18 or something i don't know some maybe 2000 I honestly can't remember the year but when the when the halloween four and five because they, they had never made it beyond dvd at that point and so we did Blu-rays and I did commentaries on them with director Dwight Little on four mm-hmm. and Don Shanks on five who played Michael. And those were the first two discs that I really ever produced anything for was Halloween four and five, which was those two movies were huge for me as a kid because those were the new ones when I was mm-hmm. younger. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being I, distinct memories of seeing running them running four, and then my parents took us to a party with some friends and I showed up with this couple of tapes that I had rented, one of which was Halloween four within about 10 minutes, every other kid had left the room and I was sitting there at some stranger's house while everyone else is having this party outside. I'm inside (laughs) watching Halloween four just scared, (laughs) scared out of my wits. And, and then I couldn't, my, my buddy I mentioned earlier on the, who was cool enough that his parents let him subscribe to Fango he used to sneak him into school like contraband so I could look at them when we're on breaks and stuff. Anyway, he and I would 
we talk endlessly about four and like where is this shit going and then five came out pretty quickly and then we didn't know what to make of that but then six really really made my head spin and um so i was so excited when the producer's cut finally happened that happened prior to the box set the the producer's cut was released mm-hmm. on its own oh, blu-ray yeah yeah i, I, I Which, bought it as soon as i could yeah, that's that. But that's something that that I thought never would happen because when I was at Trancus, I brought it up over and over again, and we knew where the where there was a print up in Toronto. We knew that there was a print of it there. Daniel Ferens knew where there was a print. He's the writer of the film, and he had been championing the producer's cut for a long time. And you mentioned the way that the film was rearranged, and that's what the Weinstein's were famous for before they became famous for other things. They they were. They were famous for fucking with people's movies. They did it with mm-hmm. Halloween, or I mean, with the uh, the Hellraiser films. Like I think, Bloodline is one of my favorite Hellraiser movies. Even after they fucked with it, they would go in and even on on H two O, they changed the the score. They they cut some of the screen score into it to make it sort of comfort food for the audience, which made no sense and was completely unnecessary. Because John Ottman had done an incredible orchestral score for that film. But um, so it's just like this crazy Weinstein universe where they were screwing with everything. And once I heard rumors of there being an alternate cut of six, I was obsessed. And I was going to stop at nothing to try to get my hands on it. And I, I still have that tape. I still have it in the attic with the videotapes that I've kept. Somewhere too, yeah. So I was excited when it came out on Blu-ray. That, that was a long time in the coming. And... As much as I would have loved to have had a bigger hand in that box set, uh, everybody who contributed to it did just an amazing job. And it's such a, an amazing thing that it even happened, considering all of the different production houses that were involved with those movies over the years. Mm-hmm. The Weinstein thing was happening during this. And I just it's, it's really unbelievable that that is on anyone's shelf. And so those who have it really need to hold on to it because the odds of that ever happening again are so slim. I just can't imagine it ever occurring. Not with all the films, not with all of them. Well, the reason I even brought it up, and I don't know if this is, exists, but if it doesn't, what I would love to see as a fan of the movie is just a documentary about the troubled yeah. shoot and – almost like a, a making of because it has such an interesting story. And again, yeah. I've always found it kind of along the same lines as, as your silent night, deadly night twos, as some of your other films. And I just, I didn't know if anything like that existed. And of course I haven't got to, to see any of the special features that are on the, the Halloween six. That's part of the, the Halloween collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to get a hold of it just to see what's on there because I'm so fascinated by the film. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one that definitely merits the documentary. I mean, they all do, but that one especially because it it's the most um I mean, really it's 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 the one that has that added allure of that that alternate version and I think the stories behind it with it being Donald's last movie. Yeah. Yeah, with it being yeah. an early one for Paul Rudd in his career and there's a lot of components that are very unique about that film that i think would make for an absolutely fascinating documentary it's just too bad there aren't more of those people alive now i'm sure i'm sure there's archival stuff that can be dug out there is some Mm -hmm. of that in that box set um so it's totally doable and there are still plenty of people alive who are a part of it so 
it's, it's a movie that has so many stories to be told and it, it's going to take someone like you to help reveal that stuff the right kind of the right kind of interest the right kind of fan you know what i mean i guess the last thing that i, that I really want would like to do is tell the audience what can we do to best support your work and and where would you send people to find out more about what you do and, and things like that wanted to definitely spotlight that for you i appreciate you asking yeah the best way is on my website you mentioned earlier just justinbeam.com and on social media it's just my name pretty much everywhere if you look up reverend entertainment but i try to have everything up to date in terms of what's going to come out uh, announcements on things and on my website there's even a like a newsletter sounds a little grandiose but there's you can sign up for whenever a post is done it'll shoot you an email and let you know hey there's an update on the site along with a link so you can sign up for that mailing list on my website that's a great way to keep up and, and anyone please reach out if you have questions about something or ideas or if there's some movie you'd love to see released or if you know someone who's a part of something you're like you know i knew this guy who was in this movie he has such amazing stories, so I would love to connect you with him. I uh, would love to hear from anybody and uh, dive into these kinds of conversations. I just really eat it up and have so much fun with that. So those are the ways that you can track me down. And in terms of supporting, I mean, that's the, the best way to do it is support these releases, support these films. I think I, I just people like you even acknowledging the special features and the documentary stuff that are on these just means the world in itself and then celebrating it the way that you do with the show and conversations like this but uh, everybody everybody can help by going to these labels like the shout factories who have sales throughout the year where you can pick up stuff like you found on amazon too there are some great times to buy these things if you can't afford them when they first come out tap into that part of yourself not you, just every, everyone. Mm -hmm. What I always mm -hmm. encourage folks to do is when we were kids, everything was amazing. When I was a kid, everything was open. And I didn't have filters in place, and I wasn't judgmental about movies. It, there was no bad movie in my eyes. It was just something I may have been a little less interested in than something else. And I think there's a lot of filters that are up as we age, and especially now, where we have these so much conversation online about things and we're just inundated with other people's opinions on stuff the minute anything's released so i just encourage people and this is an easy way to do it with these kinds of releases step back in time to a time when you just loved the experience of taking something in these labels are all about offering that experience to everyone and um, just open yourself up again there's not just good old film like this, like these archival things, but there's a lot of really amazing stuff being made now too. And we just need to open ourselves up to it again. And that's the best way you can support any creative person is, is to approach them without judgment. If you're going to choose to invest in something, you're investing in that person and their belief in what they've created. It doesn't need to be your belief, but um, that just, that's the kind of support that's so rare when you're in this on a day-to-day -day basis, it does feel kind of uh, anonymous and kind of invisible a lot of the time. So it just is so awesome. Like when you reached out to, to chat about this stuff today and you have the interest in supporting these things, it just really is. That's the heart of all of it. And that's what keeps it happening. 
I love what you just said there, and my my support of, of physical media has con- continued to grow over the years, and and not just so much physical media. My my main focus now has been. I mean, I buy a lot of Criterion films. I buy a mm-hmm. lot of. I've got several Arrow uh, copies, but I've really got into the the Shout and Scream Factory editions. Uh, I didn't even notice how many that I had, but while I've been talking, you know, I've got my my shelf up here, and mm-hmm. titles keep keep sticking out and i just <laughs> i just thought it was so cool that that you have have done a lot of the special features and talked with a lot of these people and and like you said you're like a, a like an archaeologist in a way of, of digging things up and yeah. it's just so cool like this has been one of the most fascinating conversations that i've had in in a very long time and i've just been eating it up and i think a lot of our um true cinephiles in our audience uh, which we definitely have some of those are, are really going to enjoy this conversation. And and again, I just can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to yeah. do it. Well, yeah. Thank you again for tapping my shoulder, man. And I'll be happy to return anytime and talk to you guys and we'll have to get an address for me to send. A, I'm, I'm sure I have another copy of, of uh, last castle. I definitely want to get that sent on and just appreciate your support. Really appreciate it. I mean, Eric, I'm sure would say the same and everyone else that you've had on here. And if I can return the, the, the gratitude and the favor by helping you guys out, like with the Halloween stuff, Halloween six, I mean, I'm, I'm here for you. So don't be shy about reaching out if you ever need somebody and you can't find them. So I'll be happy to help. No, I appreciate that too. And I'll, I'll cut a quick outro for this episode and then I'll, I'll cut recording and I'll, uh, Audience, really hope you enjoyed this interview series episode with Justin Beam. And um, as he said, you know, there are a lot of ways you can um, support his work and would love for you guys to go out and and check out his website, justinbeam.com. And that's uh, B-E-A-H-M. And you can find out about his Reverend Entertainment brand. And of course, we've only tapped the surface tonight of the different releases that he's worked on and things so um if you go out and, and purchase any of those uh from um scream or shout factory and or from amazon or just wherever you get your your physical media that helps support his work but in order to support real talk you guys know the drill we would love for you to give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform come interact with us on social media we're on twitter at real that's r-e-e-l underscore cast We're on Facebook, Real Talk A Movie podcast page, and that's where we really do a lot of our social media interaction. We've got a great group out there where we do media discussions and post funny memes and and just have a good time. Love interacting with our audience there. We're on Instagram. It's just official Real Talk podcast, and we always joke about our email, but uh, for whatever reason, if you just want to drop us a line or, or send something to us, you can send that to realtalkmoviecast at gmail.com. And for us, that's a wrap.